Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Laura Jost, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Today, we will be discussing overuse of medical services and an initiative that aims to increase conversations between physicians and patients to help them make wise decisions about appropriate care. As the American healthcare system increasingly moves from volume to value, and more physicians are being asked to embrace financial stewardship, there is increased focus on reducing the use of low-value care. One effort is the Choosing Wisely initiative from the ABIM Foundation. Previous research has shown that healthcare services continue to be overused in the United States for a variety of reasons, including a fear of malpractice on the part of physicians and patient demand for more services. In our first interview, I speak with Daniel Wolfson of the ABIM Foundation, which started the Choosing Wisely initiative. Daniel Wolfson is the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of the ABIM Foundation, as well as an editorial board member of the American Journal of Managed Care. 2017 marks the five-year anniversary of ABIM Foundation's Choosing Wisely initiative, which promotes patient-physician conversations about unnecessary medical tests and procedures. The initiative curates lists from national medical specialty societies on specific evidence-based recommendations that clinicians and patients should discuss. But first, let's go back to the beginning of the initiative. If you could talk a little bit about the idea for the campaign, when it first began to germinate, and what problem in healthcare got the ball rolling. So Howard Brody came out in, with an article in New England Journal of Medicine that called on the specialty societies to come out with five things, uh, tests and procedures where the benefits didn't outweigh the risks. And then another organization, independent of that, National Physician Alliance, also under a grant from us, did five things uh, in internal medicine, family practice, and pediatrics where the tests and procedures weren't outweigh the risks weren't outweighing the benefits. We took that project and flipped it over and said, let's ask the specialty societies to come up with their own five things. And so in the beginning, we started out with nine specialty societies with 45 recommendations and quickly uh, grew to 45 and then now is at 80 specialty societies including several non-physician specialty societies, including nursing, OT, PT, chiropractic, uh, podiatry, and and others. Um, So it it really um, began small, uh, but then as people saw that it was being recognized and useful, uh, others joined, and um, that's where we are today. And in the beginning, what was the education and outreach process like to get societies on board and Were you working with the societies about how to disseminate that information to their members? Well, you know, those nine beginning uh, specialty societies are, I think, were very heroic and very courageous because this was a new concept. For many years, we've had clinical guidelines to tell us what to do. And this was the first time that specialty societies were talking about what not to do. So I think, you know, in the beginning, this was a very risky uh, venture. Um, And I think we began to frame it as professionalism, 
that our professional charter uh, that we developed with the American College of Physicians and the European Federation of Internal Medicine talks about stewardship of resources. So we very much in the beginning and all throughout the campaign have framed this within a professional framework that physicians in the 21st century have a responsibility and a commitment to manage resources in prudent ways and not waste resources. Um, so I think that kind of framing, the framing of professionalism, the framing of we're going to be looking at things that increase quality, increase safety, and oh, by the way, they do increase costs, but that wasn't our motivation. Our motivation was better health care. The idea of choosing wisely is one that gets at the idea of overuse in healthcare, and there have been studies that show how much the overuse of low-value care has cost the country. So you're running up against decades of this overuse issue, and what has that been like to combat, and you know, how difficult is it to turn the tide? Well, you know, after five years, we have made lots of inroads into decreasing costs, but it, the problem hasn't disappeared in five years. It took us 30 or more years to have this problem of overuse. But we've seen a lot of health systems and a lot of medical groups and our grantees um, really um, tackle this problem. Um, our grantees, for instance, uh, they have, we have 14 delivery sites. And 11 of the 14, within a three-year period, decreased antibiotic use over 20%. Um, by combinations of methods, uh, peer, peer uh, comparisons, uh, clinical decision-making, uh, order sets, education, uh, some behavioral economic techniques. So we're seeing that when people focus on it, when people not only take the cultural aspects of choosing wisely, which I think are important, we all don't focus on attitudes and getting buy-in of physicians. And I think choosing wisely began with that premise. Let's get the engagement of physicians first, talk about the why of why we're doing this um, before we uh, go to the technical aspects of system changes that are often needed to remind people of what they really want to do. Um, so we think that when people do, in fact, look at the system changes that are needed, we get results. What we've seen is, particularly with some insurance companies, when they don't do that, we don't get good results. Um, if you just promulgate things out in the ether, if you will, um, you're not going to get the results you will if you put in some kind of system change that I just referred to. So we often get um, reporters like yourself saying, well, there wasn't any change. And we said, well, can you identify the intervention that was used beyond just even promulgating or education? Education, it turns out, to be the lowest form of behavioral change um, uh, that you can do. To, uh, absolutely necessary. Uh, without it, you, you couldn't get to the next step. Uh, but by itself, not really sufficient to, to do um, large-scale you know, behavioral organizational change. And so looking at culture change and education, as young doctors are being trained more in delivering value-based care um, and they're graduating and entering the market, 
Um, do you expect to see the tide turn a little bit more or is this more, is this issue more difficult than just waiting for kind of young blood taught a new way to come onto the scene? Well, uh, the young blood is in fact, um, taking real charge of this topic, I think. Um, there has been, uh, uh, in concert with us, with Cost of Care, an organization made up of some young physicians at the time. They were young residents, now they're young faculty. And we have a program with them called Teaching Value. Every year we have a challenge where we ask for bright ideas, uh, things that are in the formative stages or actually programs, and we feature them throughout the year in a webinar. We just started a new program uh, in conjunction with Dell Medical School and Macy uh, called STARS. And STARS, Choosing Wisely STARS program, teaches medical students about low-value care and, in fact, how to be leaders and enact change in their organizations, partnering with faculty, partnering with residents, but really uh, knowing how to take leadership in that area. So. I think there's been a sea change. So we've been at this with medical education for the last five years. So I think we have a cohort now of five years of residents, five years of new faculty, and I think in the next five years we'll have 10 years of cohorts, and I think that's going to be a sea change. The different attitudes about resource use uh, and low-value care than the previous, uh, previous two generations. Um, and I think that young faculty is seeing this as a space that they can own and take leadership. So I'm um, very optimistic about the next generation coming up, about their entombment to resource use. And for them, it's about their families and about um, affordability um, of health care in the future. And I think, you know, we have harm done with overuse. We have psychological harm, uh, we have physical harm, and we also have financial harm. And I think physicians have to be sensitized to all of those three things. And there is financial harm. Care is not affordable. Um, we're, we're now approaching almost 18% of GMP. And if we can eliminate unnecessary care that, in fact, improves health care, it's a win-win. And I think that's what we're involved in. As we go from a system uh, that is based on volume to value, choosing wisely is the best place to start. It helps in bundles of care, if that's what people are doing. It helps in capitated systems, if that's what they're doing. Um, it's all a part of that movement. So the next question then was, I wanted to talk about a health affairs article that had come out in October um, that researchers had found since 2014, physician awareness of the initiative hadn't increased much. It was, it went up from 21% to 25%. Mm -hmm. But when they had heard the description of what Choosing Wisely was, it was actually, awareness was at 42%. So what have been the biggest barriers to increasing awareness? Well, we haven't focused on awareness. Um, we're focusing on resources for healthcare systems and medical groups to use. We want to see implementation of our recommendations. Our brand is not what we're, you know, pushing. Um, we're not selling anything. We're trying to change behaviors and trying to change uh, overuse. Um, so 
We're not an organization that's going out and trying to toot the horn of choosing wisely. We're trying to get health systems and health uh, providers involved in thinking about overuse and using this as a tool to do that. So I'm not that surprised uh, that our brand recognition didn't go up because we didn't focus on that. Um, and we'll try to, we'll try to increase uh, awareness of overuse. I think that's important. But I'm not out to, and we're not out to, you know, make Choosing Wisely a brand. Actually, I think Choosing Wisely as a name um, resonates with people. And, you know, it's not saying uh, overuse or overtreatment. It's talking about wise choices and options for physicians and patients to think about. The good thing is that the study did show that more than 90% of the physicians surveyed believed that the campaign had value. They believed in what it was doing. And other studies have, have shown, uh, one um, by looking at um, a big medical group in Atrius, that physicians are feeling more comfortable with the conversation and more aware of the issues. And that's what we're after. We're after really physicians taking the ownership and responsibility of overuse. And that was our objective. That was our primary objective going in. So choosing wisely doesn't just focus on the physicians. There is a patient component. Um, there's lists, there's questions that patients can be asking. So how can the patients be involved and start these conversations? Are you working with advocacy groups? Right. We have a large uh, uh, consumer um, and employer uh, network. And we're also asking uh, patients to think about five questions for themselves. Um, are there other options? Do I really need this test? What is the cost of this test? So there's an active participation by the patient and the physician around a conversation of what's the best care for me. None of these recommendations are absolutes. They're really like, let's have a, let's have a conversation and let's see what's most suitable given my health history, my circumstances, what's best for me in these circumstances. So we're trying to arm both physicians and patients with information they need to have those kind of conversations. And lastly, what do the next five years hold for Choosing Wisely? It's um, really about implementation and uh, getting that, those in health systems and medical groups and clinical practice and implementing them and reducing um, overuse. So I'm not talking to you in five years about this. Uh, this is a campaign that has a beginning and an end. And we think in five years, we should have addressed this. And shame on us if we haven't. And shame on the health systems and the medical groups and the physicians if we can't get this down. Um, this has been a problem for 30 years, and, I, and we've made great progress in the next five. And usually, massive change takes 15 years, but I want to do it in 10. So if you do get to the next five years and overuse is not a problem anymore and it's been addressed and that's great, what's the next thing that you would ideally like to We can set divert out? wasteful resources to a more health, a culture of health that many people have been talking about and looking at social determinants of health. Let's use that money to go upstream to look at social determinants of health, housing, food, nutrition, um, you know, the things that really make a difference in, in the health of a population. That's where we need to be. That's where we take 
$240 billion a year and put it over there. And you know that's what a good health plan would do. That's what Kaiser Permanente does. They take money that they save and they put it upstream for things that really make a difference in health. One of the societies that has participated in choosing wisely and continues to promote the recommendations is the American Society of Hematology. At this year's annual meeting, which was held December 9th through 12th in Atlanta, Georgia, attendees frequently saw advertisements for ASHA's Choosing Wisely participation, as well as a session promoting Choosing Wisely champions. The next interview with Dr. Lisa Hicks, the chair of the ASH Choosing Wisely Task Force, was held in a hallway at the annual meeting, so there is some background noise. I'm with Dr. Lisa Hicks of St. Michael's Hospital and the University of Toronto and the chair of the American Society of Hematology Choosing Wisely Task Force. And we're actually in Atlanta, Georgia at ASH's 59th annual meeting and exposition. Um, so you will hear some noise in the background during our interview, which we apologize for. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Hicks, for meeting with me today. You're welcome. So you're the chair of the Choosing Wisely Task Force, and I was wondering first if you can discuss why ASH participated in the initiative and how you got involved as chair. Sure, I'd be happy to. So this was back in 2012, really, and ASH um, was really starting to very seriously think about how we could be involved in the quality improvement arena. and including many different aspects of improving and optimizing care. And Choosing Wisely had just gotten started. There had been um, a small number of societies that had been involved and released uh, recommendations, and we were aware of that. And we were aware of the impact, or rather the buzz that was being created around Choosing Wisely. Um, and we wanted to be a part of that. We thought that uh, it was really important for us to have a voice in that dialogue uh, for our patients. And I think that the mission of Choosing Wisely really appealed uh, to Ash, and we thought it would appeal to our membership. And that is to really start conversations around things that we do, tests and treatments that we do, which may not be helpful in certain scenarios and may in some scenarios even be harmful. Uh, and that really resonated uh, with with. Uh, with ASH and was something we wanted to, to be a part of. What does it mean to be the chair of the task force? What is, what is your role? Um, so my role was to try and help define our mission. So how were we going to be involved in choosing wisely? Um, and to bring together a team and a group of collaborators. And it was really very much a team approach. So um, I coordinated and led the task force with the assistance of ASH staff. Uh, but really, this was a group effort. There were many people who were really dedicated um, to uh, investing their time and coming up with a list, uh, and a rigorous process for developing that list, uh, and then uh, disseminating that list more widely. So I know there are 10 recommendations right now. Um, what was that process for picking recommendations? And you know, can you give maybe some examples of what those recommendations include? Yeah. So we thought it was really important to be uh, rigorous about how we identified items. Uh, we really wanted to be uh, evidence-based. And so we came up with a method whereby we sought recommendations um, from a group within the ASH community, and we identified a number of committees and subcommittees and um, 
practice groups that we felt would be interested in contributing suggestions. So we had a process for soliciting email suggestions, and we received uh, just over 100 uh, different suggestions of items to consider for the first round that we did, and approximately 100 for the second round. And then we used a group consensus decision-making process on the task force to whittle that list down uh, to 10, 10 items. And we then actually went out and did formal systematic reviews for each of those 10 items um, so that we could really understand the evidence body. And we used that evidence body and a consensus building process to then go down to the final five recommendations for the first year. And then we redid that whole process again um, the second year. And that's how we came up with 10 different recommendations. Are they... These recommendations in a specific area, for the most part, are they kind of all over the place? No, we thought it was really important that the recommendations uh, represent the breadth of hematology. Um, so the recommendations span uh, adult and pediatric. Um, there are no recommendations that are specific to pediatric, but many of the recommendations are relevant and, um, to adult and pediatric, and we certainly have pediatric hematologists as part of our group. Uh, we also have recommendations that are relevant to malignant and non-malignant hematology. Great. And having done this twice, did you notice any interesting patterns regarding those types of recommendations that um, members were sending in? Yeah, I think the most reassuring thing that we noticed was redundancy. So although we had over a hundred different um, suggestions, the same themes came up um, repeatedly. And in fact, if you look at the final list of five the first year and five the second year, those tended to be items that were suggested by numerous individuals. And, and that was really reassuring to us, telling us that we were really on the right track and that um, there was a common view within the community. And are there plans to update the Choosing Wisely recommendations a third time? So certainly we update them every year, meaning that what we do is we review the literature and we make certain that the recommendations still stand and that there hasn't been any evolution in the evidence to suggest that those need to be changed. Uh, we do that. We don't at this time have any plans to generate a new list or a list 11 through 15. Instead, we really shifted our focus to implementation and how can ASH encourage implementation of initiatives uh, that try and tackle overutilization. And so for the past, well, last year and again this year, we're choosing to really spotlight um, implementation efforts by our membership. And we do that through a program called the ASH Choosing Wisely Champions. And this is done again in collaboration with, with the ABIM Foundation. Um, they invited all participating societies to develop a process to identify champions um, and to give them an award. And we wanted to do this in a way that uh, brought attention to actual implementation efforts. And so now what we do is each year we run a competitive process. We invite applications for um, initiatives that are focusing on overutilization in hematology. And importantly, they don't actually have to address one of the ASH Choosing Wisely statements. They really just they have to be consistent with the theme of overutilization. And certainly, they have to be in the hematology space. Those are the two main criteria. Um, and we've had some amazing applications and um, submissions. We highlighted three different initiatives last year. And tomorrow, we'll be highlighting three more. And so um, how has ASH and the task force otherwise been involved in disseminating recommendations and helping the clinicians to impact them so they can start these conversations with patients? Right. Um, 
Well, I think that Choosing Wisely's big success has really been on uh, increasing awareness, and I think that's true of the Ash campaign as well. Um, there's been a really robust uh, marketing campaign and awareness building campaign, getting these uh, these recommendations out there, and you'll see quite a Choosing Wisely presence uh, even at this meeting, even though it's our fourth year really being a part of the Choosing Wisely uh, campaign. In addition to disseminating through usual channels, we've also, like many of the other societies, uh, partnered um, with Consumer Reports to identify one recommendation and prepare a Consumer Report, one recommendation each year. So for for us, that's two different recommendations. Um, Prepare Consumer Reports to really help uh, consumers or patients understand why specific tests or treatments might not be recommended for them. We also, at ASH, um, have something we call the pocket guides, which are very popular. And pocket guides exist in both a digital and a paper resource. And they're used to summarize important guidelines. And we've also used them to summarize choosing policy recommendations. And that's been uh, a popular tool. And then what impact do you think Choosing Wisely has had so far on the delivery of care, um, specifically within the hematology space? Yeah, it's really difficult and ambitious, I think, to try and measure an impact on actual care delivery. Um, I think that the Choosing Wisely campaign's role has been to increase awareness, to start a conversation, and and really get people thinking about uh, overutilization and what we do, uh, which we may not need to do. And I think in that sense, Choosing Wisely has been extremely successful. Um, There's broad awareness. When I started doing this, you know, I always had to begin my talks or my... um, conversations with colleagues or uh, presentations with a little bit of an introduction about just what Choosing Wisely was and a little background. And for the past two or three years, I don't have to do that anymore. There's really wide understanding of what Choosing Wisely is. That's a brand that's recognized. And uh, the concept of thinking about overutilization as an, issue, an important issue in medicine uh, has really penetrated in my opinion. Now that's different from changing practice. And my own view is that education is the foundation and choosing wisely is largely an education strategy, uh, but that education alone, we should rarely expect that to lead to changes and that it's really important to have a structured approach to implementation. And that's why we've shifted to choosing wisely champions. Got it. Thank you very much for your time. I know you're very busy at the meeting, so thank you for spending some time with me today to talk about this. You're very welcome. As the U.S. healthcare system continues to go through a transformation from volume to value, initiatives like Choosing Wisely will be important for enacting change in the culture and behaviors of healthcare providers. To learn more about the Choosing Wisely initiative, visit our show notes.